This episode is brought to you by The One Summit, two days that would change your life forever. For tickets, go to theonesummit.com. Welcome to Careers Unplugged, the weekly show connecting you to secrets of career success. Careers Unplugged is hosted by Rich Sayer and Stu Hayes and proudly sponsored by the Master of Me coaching program. If you feel being happy, committed and passionate about your career is important, you're in the right place. My name is Rich Sayer and I'm here with the fabulous co-founder of Careers Unplugged and the Master of Me coaching program, Stewie Hayes. Stuart, good evening. Rich, I have a smile on my face. How are you? I am uh, I'm well, thank you for asking. That's great. That's great. Good day. I have had a good day. It's been a productive day. Doing my best physical efforts in a number of areas. Very pleased to hear that. Yes. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Shall I introduce our special guest? Please do. Well, this is going to be a very fascinating discussion today, Rich. Mm -hmm. Our special guest is a renowned medical researcher and a doctor who cut his teeth as a a general duties doctor, as they call it, in Mozambique, working at almost every clinical level in the country, from provincial hospital all the way out to the rural health posts, and you can sort of imagine the sort of setting that he might have had to work in. The, that's, the scope, yeah. Well, I think it's uh, something that I wouldn't, I'm quite keen to talk about, to be honest, as we get a bit later on. So he's come back from, um, from Mozambique. He's taken a master's degree in public health in England, spent a year in Tanzania, went back to Mozambique, bounced around a fair bit in different places, continuously on the front line um, of uh, developing country health services around the world. Since 2007, he has been Associate Professor in Global Health at the University of Melbourne's Nassau Institute for Global Health. His current research interests include the development of low-cost technologies for health in developing countries, especially the use of mobile devices, which sounds quite interesting, Mm. I have to say. Professor Jim Black, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to Careers Unplugged. Thank you, Stuart. Jim, that's uh, a very, from my perspective, challenging uh, course of events there, going into developing countries and and obviously the um, demand for medical services there will be colossal, I should imagine. Is this something that you dreamt of doing when you were a kid at school or how, how did you end up going down this path? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I didn't dream of it as a kid at school, certainly. Um, And when I first went to Monash University to start medical school, I would have said I was on my way to be a um, GP in the suburbs, and that would have been very nice. Mm. But but, uh, I went to a talk, a lunchtime talk, by a visiting academic from India who told us about the... Um, rural unit for health and social affairs at their local hospital medical school. This is in a place called Velo, um, near Chennai. And I just sat there thinking, wow, this is really impressive. This is great stuff. And so when it came time for my medical school elective, where we have to arrange our own um, elective program for a couple of months, I went to Velo in India. Mm. And that was it. Never looked back. Um, was that- so this is uh, just after you graduated? Before I graduated, I went as a student, um, which was good because I joined their medical students and sort of did the ward rounds and things with them. So there wasn't pressure on me to perform. I could just soak it up. It was really, really useful. And before that, I mean, if you get back into high school, did you, you know, had you 
um, had any interest in that type of thing when you look back? Uh, it's, it's not something that I'd planned for, no. No, not really. And obviously go, going into medicine, you know, the uh, desire to contribute and to serve others is, I guess, at the core of the Hippocratic Oath or, or, or the, you know, the, the intention of serving others through medicine. Uh, was it a case of the, the need there was so great that it was, it was compelling? Yeah, that, that's pretty much it. In fact, that's because um, I've never worked in India. I went there. That was the kind of starting point. But uh, I've worked mostly in Africa, and that was definitely the, the motivation for going to Africa, is that no matter what statistic you want to measure, Africa's always the worst. Yeah. In fact, I, I can remember being in Mozambique, and I first went there in 1987, which was pretty much the lowest point of their civil war that happened after they got independence. Um, and I remember the newspaper headline one day that said, Mozambique is no longer the world's poorest country. It has rocketed <laughs> up to the fourth poorest country in the world. Um, and so, you know, when, whenever you think, where, where's the need? Where's the, the, the biggest unjust inequalities in health? It's always Africa. So, and that, that was the next thing I discovered. And so it was, it was a really easy choice to go and work in Africa. But what, what motivated you? What sort of, you know, what, what, how could you explain that to your mum, dad, family, you know? Gee, um, I've just finished my medical degree. I, I think I'm going to go to the poorest place in the world to help. But that's, that, that, you see, to me, that seems like justification in itself. Um, and that was pretty much how I would have expressed it. There, there was a lot more to it, of course. I remember in the, the mid-1980s, um, South Africa was an apartheid regime and... Uh, I could always get a joke, in fact, in Mozambique in the, the late 80s by saying, I'll only visit South Africa when Nelson Mandela's the president. And everybody would laugh because at the time, um, the Thatcher government in England, for example, said he was a terrorist and they branded the ANC terrorists. So it was, um, for countries along the border with South Africa, particularly Mozambique, um, they were kind of a threatening good example. So... Um, initially Rhodesia and then later apartheid South Africa just tried to make their life as miserable as possible. Going through medical school and, and becoming a doctor is uh, no, no mean feat. There's quite a few years of education there and obviously a great deal of uh, application of the information that you learn. How important for you was goal setting in, in uh, establishing your career as a doctor and how important has goal setting now become for you in the work that you're doing? Yes, um, quite important, I suppose. Um, certainly in, in medical school, it all seems very straightforward because you know what you need to do next. And mm. so you can define the goals very clearly. Um, the global health it doesn't tend to work like that. In fact, in public health in general. So if you're going to specialize in surgery or internal medicine, you can still say, this is what I have to be doing in two years' time, this is what I have to be doing in five years' time, and mm. so on. But in, in global health, if you talk to all of us who have made careers in global health, we've all got a completely different trajectory. And there's usually some critical points where something just came up, you know, a serendipitous moment where a job possibility or a piece of advice came. So the goals are much less uh, clear and it's more a matter of seeing the possibilities when they arise and grabbing them. 
rather than really being able to plan. You know, my first job in Mozambique came through the fact that I'd been doing some volunteer work with an aid agency here in, in Australia, and then because I was going to study in England, someone said, why don't you stop off in one of the, in a refugee camp that we're involved in? So I said, sure, why not? What a good way to spend a stopover on the way to England. And then I was a little bit known, and so when the job opportunity came up, people thought of me. Um, but there was no point where I said, well, I'd better get some experience in a refugee camp. As a, <laughs> you know, wasn't, so. It wasn't a tick off the bucket list type scenario. No, not, not even a tick off the things to put on your CV sort of scenario. Which yeah. is, if you can identify those, they're really good. But in global health, they're really hard to spot. Where you? So it's almost like you, you know what you're sort of saying is uh, is a theme that another guest um, we had recently talked about as well, which is so you sort of set a goal, which is a general direction, um, and then what's happened is you've followed the lead of just events that have popped up or things have just come in front of you, and you've just is that sort of how it's happened? Yeah, and you put it really nicely, I think, because if you don't set that general direction that you want to go in, you won't recognise which of the opportunities are the ones you should take. Mm. And you could, in global health, you could sort of wander aimlessly from one job to another and not build, not have them building on each other. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it's kind of hard to know because I only know nowadays people who've got established careers in global health, so I don't know how many people give it a try and then decide it's not for them. But certainly amongst those of us who are sort of mid-career and beyond, um, we've all had this long-term idea, yes, I'd want to make a profession out of this, mm. and we've all had different opportunities and different actual pathways. Okay. It makes it very hard to advise a young doctor starting out, but you can't really say to them, find the first civil war you can and win. <laughs> <laughs> well, not officially. <laughs> but no, that, that wouldn't be good advice because, uh, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's not the the answer for everybody and um, you know there, there are so many other opportunities so many other different ways you can do it and it's more a matter of knowing what the long-term goal is and then grabbing opportunities when they come up. Uh, one of our guests once said uh, it's easier to ride a horse in the direction it's going and <laughs> and uh, which really stuck with me and I've contemplated it a fair bit. In, in, you know you're saying in a place of overwhelming need uh, for for medical help, healing resources in this area, how do you prioritise, using the word priority, I guess, rather than goal setting, how do you prioritise your activities when you have so many capabilities and there are so many different, you know, segments of the market that, that you could apply those capabilities to? How do you personally go about doing it? Is it is there some emotional... Uh, content in the decision making or sometimes you just look at what where you are going to be of best service in the short run and I, I think it's it's rational rather than um, emotional mm -hmm. um, I remember reading quite early in my career a fairly cynical um, story about working in clinics and they, they put it sort of poetically it said that working in clinics in jungles and savannas is like trying to empty the Atlantic Ocean with a teaspoon and that you can work away at it your whole life, you're not going to see any actual change, although occasionally people will compliment you on how nice your teaspoon is. Mm. Um, and so I, I sort of set out thinking I don't want to get into that um, process. I'm, I'm not happy just to do the same work over and over again 
and not have anything change. So that that was a kind of driving um, principle in in deciding what should be the priority, which led me to the part that says um, the role for doctors in a setting where there are so few of us is actually about training other people and managing rather than trying to see all the patients yourself, do all the work yourself. So it's about creating leverage through sharing the knowledge and education. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Mozambique made that decision very early on that they wouldn't initially concentrate on training a lot of doctors because it would just too much to require too much resources, but rather they would have sort of mid-level cadres of health workers who they gave odd names like medical agents or medical technicians, and they are the backbone of the health service, so most of the actual patient care is done by these mid-level people. And so that means the role for the doctors is training those people, supervising them, making sure that uh, um, the health service is, is working well. But it's, it, the role is not to sit in a, a clinic and, and just be the GP. Mm. It sounds Although, like... Sorry, sorry, Stu, you go. I, I did a fair bit of that um, when I think back. But also to someone trained in Australia, something like tuberculosis or leprosy is really interesting and exotic. And I, so I used to volunteer for those sort of clinics. Whereas my Mozambican colleagues said, oh, TB and leprosy, we see that every day. You know, and I'm not interested in doing that clinic. So I did it. I'm, I'm just interested, Jim. You know, you're, you sort of ultimately transferred away from um, what I guess, you know, the front, the front line, so to speak, where um, I've got this very strong vision now of a, of a, a person with a teaspoon trying to um, keep the ocean at bay, um, which must be very demotivating. But I do know, you know, from, um, from what you're talking about, but also generally, that the leverage you can create when you teach and train is very powerful. But I'm just wondering, um, the other way to create leverage, of course, is to shift the paradigm. I mean, isn't, isn't it really in terms of research, things like that? Is that? Was that one of the motivators for you to get into research? Yeah, that, and that's the kind of the way that my career has evolved. That in the beginning, because it, it is actually very satisfying. I don't want to down the idea of, of treating sick people it's very satisfying when you see someone who's desperately ill and you do something relatively straightforward choose the right antibiotic or give them the right treatment for malaria and they they're brought back to life again that's really good but after a while the atlantic ocean similarly begins to mm. you know seem very real so then you move into, um, as I did, you move into the public health area. So the second half of my time in Mozambique, I was mostly at provincial level. So I was working with people running the provincial level programs in mother and child health or leprosy or oral health and so on. And was that impact or having greater impact, was that the motivator? Yeah, exactly. So you, you sort of, you can feel like... Um, you put in just the amount of effort, the same amount of effort, but you can imagine more people getting a benefit from it. Um, and, so, and then I've moved from there again to saying, okay, how do we improve the tools, particularly the, um, the technology available to the health workers at that frontline level so that you know, we, we can do one thing here, say build a piece of technology that would potentially be applicable to hundreds of thousands of health workers then you start to feel like it, you, know, you can really have some impact. Mind you, the further you, away you are from the actual sick child in the clinic, the more tenuous that connection is and the, um, the greater the risk of failure. 
you know, so our clever ideas may not work. Um, but, you know, I've, I've moved to that stage where I think it's definitely worth trying. I'm, I'm just imagining the analogy of uh, the postal worker, the way you're talking about the teaspoon in the ocean. You know, the, the mail comes in, or at least it used to, and uh, they'd sort the mail, and, and, you know, yet the individual mail is actually delivered. So that individual person that is ill is made well. And yet you can only really get out of the system what the system can deliver. So what I'm hearing is is about really working on the system rather than in the system. Yeah, and you have to know the system well. So you have to do a few years at the front line yep. before you can really contribute much to the system-wide issues. Jump, and ju- that's definitely advice I give to young doctors is don't try and skip that stage. You have to go out there and, and spend the time hot and sweaty in a place with no electricity, seeing a great big long line of children with pneumonia, in order to know what the likely outcomes of your later interventions will be. Mm-hmm. Is that a reality check of just the deliverable aspects of, of, of the service? Yeah, because um, there, there's, there are so many aspects to getting a new idea to work. It has to be quicker and easier for the health workers. It has to be effective. It has to not cost any more than the current one and so on. Getting them all just right is really difficult. So you've got to be able to imagine yourself as one of those health workers sitting in the clinic and say to yourself, is this actually going to look like a useful thing to them? It will look like something that's going to add, say, two minutes to every consultation. And if they've got a queue of 100 people every morning and you ask them to add two minutes to each consultation, they'll just say, no, I can't do it. And I'm not going to use it. So I'm, I'm imagining, you know, uh, medical school, you know, hard work but fun at the same time. And uh, you sort of jumped right out of your comfort zone by, by going to India at such a young, young age and then, and then into these developing nations, particularly Africa. Have there been dark moments in that journey? Have there been times you thought, what am I doing? There have been a few, yeah. Um, in, in, in Mozambique, to start off, of course, it was during the Civil War. And uh, the first place that I worked in managed to turn into one of the hot zones. And uh, so for a while, we used to go to bed at night um, with our escape bag laid out, just in case the town was attacked during the night. And, in fact, on, on two occasions we did have to flee from um, um, firefights going on on the edge of town. Um, and I did. I had to stop and think, why am I here? What am I doing this for? Um, so, the, yeah, there's been a few difficult moments. And but now looking back on that, that was really useful because that was an, um, an unmissable experience. If, if, if I could go back now guaranteed um, not to actually come to any harm, which uh, I was lucky enough not to, it was really, really useful experience. The, Strange that might sound. The adre- or, adrenaline adds to the learning curve, does it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when well, you say it was useful, just in terms of what you talked about earlier, in terms of having uh, insight into the coalface, therefore um, when you're developing improvements for people on the coalface. Yeah, exactly. You, you've got to know what it's like to, well, not so much the, the wartime aspects of it, but just to know what it's like to have so few resources and such a big queue of people. Um, and that's, that was about as extreme as it gets. I suppose an equivalent would be working in a, 
a brand new refugee camp, you're getting a thousand new people arriving every day. It's a real baptism of fire, but you come out of it with really good understanding of what's important and what isn't. Mm. You talked about, um, um, I guess, following your nose to some degree um, and, and that opportunities presented themselves when you had this loose long-term direction um, in mind. Would you regard that anything that has happened to you w- was a big break that sort of really changed, was it, that was a turning point in retrospect? Uh, there's several, actually. Um, I think probably the, the first one, and maybe may therefore one of the most significant, was getting good advice on what to study next. And there is, um, in, in the UK, there are two very well-established schools of tropical medicine. Most people don't know this, but there's a school of tropical medicine in Liverpool and one in London. Okay. And they offer a short, intensive diploma course. It's called the Diploma in Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, or DTMNH. And I didn't even know it existed until um, I was already out of medical school and working in a hospital in, in Melbourne. And so getting that little bit of advice, if you want to work in Africa, you should really do the DTMNH. That, that really put me on the right road. And it, it's a piece of advice I give to uh, young doctors graduating now. And here in the Nossel Institute, we're actually in the process of putting together our own DTMNH course because uh, it's an awful long way to the UK and quite expensive for young graduates to go there. So we're, uh, from next year, we'll be offering a diploma course here based on the, the same sort That's of sort of uh, one of the themes that you just mentioned then is of interest, um, I think, to a lot of the listeners, which was um, you talked about the advice you give to young doctors and you also talked about the advice you were given. Um, have you generally tried to find people who were mentors um, on your journey? And yeah, I have. And it's actually not easy, um, particularly if you're somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. But yes, um, there are a few people that I would think of as really useful mentors who've been very influential. By total coincidence, the person who gave me that really good advice 30 years ago to go and study um, in, in England is now my boss. He's the director of the Nossel Institute. Um, and there's an Australian, <laughs> wow. there's an Australian physician epidemiologist um, who's been in Mozambique basically ever since independence, and she has been really useful in, in mentoring me. Um, it, it makes all the difference. If, I think if you don't find somebody who can you can use as a sounding board and uh, sort of try out ideas and see the way their career has gone, then you could really flounder. And it's something I would definitely recommend to um, young players. Look for somebody who's some way down the track beyond you and, and um, use them as, as a sounding board. Ask their advice. See if you can get somebody to help you think these things through. Is that, is that sort of how you manage to get through um, those turning points, those tough times? Yes, yeah, very much, yep. Um, yeah. I still made a few mistakes, but uh, it, it really is helpful to be able to... <laughs> yeah. And uh, tell us how you... So what about, you I mean, you've ultimately come into the research world. Um, what's, what's going on there? What's... Um, well, see, at the University of Melbourne, we talk about a triple helix. Um, not sure if you dreamed that one up, but it's to emphasise that we do research, yes, but that's only one of the three strands. And teaching is a really big strand, and so is what we call engagement, which means taking the results of our research and putting them into the real world. And so 
I don't feel like I've kind of stepped away from the real world. Um, mm. The kind of research that we're working on is all very um, practical and very much intended to be directly useful to the, the frontline health workers. With, with the uh, use of mentors to help guide you on your journey, uh, have you ever had anyone tap you on the shoulder and say, look, I know you have great intentions, but you're actually going in the wrong direction here and you need to, uh, you know, go in a different direction? Not as much as that, no. Um, where you tend to hear that in the global health world is the young doctor who's in the hospital system mm. Mm. and they've got a senior colleague who's thinking, oh, this person would make a really good anaesthetist or surgeon or whatever. And then they say, but I really want to go off and work in Africa. And it doesn't make any sense to the, the senior clinician who says to them, well, if you do that, you know, you'll never get back on the, the pathway again. Mm, mm. And I know a lot of my colleagues have been told exactly that. You know, you'll never get a proper job in Australia again if you go and work in Africa. It's, about, it's, mm. it's not, not true, um, or at least for those people that I know now with um, well-established careers. So you have to pick and choose a bit, I think, and make sure that you're getting advice from someone who's actually lived it themselves. What would be the highlight for you, Jim? Oh, there are lots of highlights. Um, it, the thing is, that each step of the way in my career has been really fulfilling. I mean, it, it looks as though I've kind of left things behind, but at the time, the, it was always just the right thing for me to be doing. And it, I think a lot of that is just luck or maybe good advice from people, but when I was a young clinician, it was really exciting to be out there you know, seeing good things happening. Um, but then as I kind of moved on from that, then I did really exciting things in um, public health, and including, for example, um, when would it have been? Sometime in the early 90s, I remember looking at my first desktop computer and thinking, I'm probably just old enough to be able to ignore these things. <laughs> or I'm just young enough to be able to really embrace this. Um, and so I did. I, I was working in Tanzania and there was a book on the shelf uh, with the title Teach Yourself Database Programming. So I thought, right, I'm going to teach myself database programming. And uh, that then became really interesting exciting. In fact, I've, I'm a reasonably confident computer programmer in a couple of different languages nowadays, starting from there. So it kind of felt like just the right thing to be doing at the time. Well, this, this, this really interests to me when I think of uh, the advances in medicine, and I've seen a few things, particularly around Apple products, iPads and iPhones and remote diagnosis, and particularly when you're talking about vast areas with large populations in dire need of, of service and not enough doctors. Has the technology come along to that point where you can deliver that much more service and, and how much is that going to influence the future in these countries that you're talking about? The technology will definitely influence the future, no question about that. I, I don't think it's going to be telemedicine though. I think it's actually point of care decision support that makes all the difference. So it's not that we spread the doctors ever more thinly by having them trying to support directly support individual decision-making. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we need is to use the really clever new technology we've got but to support the non-doctor health workers. So to give an example, um, 
calculating the right dose of a drug for a small child can be a bit tricky because there might be different dosing regimens for different diseases. And you've got to calculate the dose according to the weight of the child. So it's so many milligrams per kilogram per day. But then when you dispense it, it's in tablets and you can break a tablet in four, but not really, you know, sevenths, for example. So it's quite a complex process from thinking through what the dose should be in milligrams and eventually turning that into something you can actually describe to the dark mother, you know, break it in four and give it to three quarters of the tablet. And um, that's really hard for health workers to do. So, I mean, and it's time consuming even for well-trained doctors to do. So we've been building a mobile phone application that has the whole national formulary, all the relevant drugs for the, the frontline level, has all that in it. And so they can choose the drug, say what they want to use it for, say how much the child weighs. And it does the tedious calculations for them and tells them what to write on the prescription. That, that's really transformative. Um, and we're doing it on mobile phones. And what the in the, the mobile phone industry they call feature phones, so not smartphones, but not the lowest level dumb phones, but feature phones. So imagine a Nokia candy bar type phone with a camera. They will run <laughs> Java applications. <laughs> that, that, and, and the health workers have already got phones of some sort, so they know how to use them in general terms. We can suddenly give them a toolkit that they've never had access to before that does the calculations, gives them the right answers uh, without needing intervention from someone else. It doesn't need to connect through the network. It doesn't send any data anywhere. It just does the calculation and tells them what to write. So it's, that's the bit that I find really exciting. In fact, I, I use a Apollo 13 analogy with my technology colleagues. So I work a lot with electronic engineers and sometimes with physicists and so on. And, um, I'm old enough to actually remember Apollo 13. You're probably young enough to have seen the movie. <laughs> but, so the basic story is that there was an explosion on board this, the spaceship and instead of landing on the moon, all they could do was limp around it and then try and get back to Earth before all the bits fell off. And halfway back, the carbon dioxide levels were rising and they had to find a way to adapt the carbon dioxide scrubbers from the lunar lander so they'd work in the main cabin. And the engineers back on Earth got this job. Find a way to adapt it, but it has to be only using things that are already on board the ship and only using skills and um, knowledge that the astronauts can apply without a special new training course. And that's the way I look on the work we do in Africa. We've got the technology, the clever technology here, but we have to do it in such a way that it's actually usable and sustainable in a frontline clinic by health workers without um, them having to go to university to learn how to use it. And it's, it's, it's a kind of makes it much more fun project. It's not that hard to make a new piece of technology if there are no limits on what you do. But if you are constrained in that way, it suddenly becomes a much more interesting challenge. Mm. And engineers generally get it as well because, you know, NASA follow fun stuff. Jim, we're running out of time in this interview and uh, I know there's a bunch of really, really what I'd call cool things that you've, uh, you've been involved with. Um, and just for the listeners, um, jump on to careersunplugged.com and check out um, a video from ABC News. It's a little six-minute video that ABC put together on um, one of Jim's research teams and how they developed a very low-cost 
uh, electricity-free oxygen concentrator that saves the lives of people with pneumonia, um, as an example. But can I ask you, Jim, what would be your golden nugget that you would give to people earlier on in your career, in their career, sorry? Um, a golden nugget. Okay, a difficult question. I, th- I think it would probably be um, trust your own intuitions. Um, there, there's no clear path forward. There will be people telling you that you're going off on the wrong track. But if you've got that sense, that um, you know, the enthusiasm, the passion, if you like, um, look for ways to put it in place, to, to make it work rather than um, taking away the safe path. Not so it's a nugget. But it's when you're saying, you mean, uh, so if, if, a, if a direction is resonating for you, just keep searching for the ways for it to work, is it sort of? Yeah, well, if, if you can't find someone else who's already been down that path and see what they did, um, it might not be easy to find such a person, but mm. you know, they may well exist. Find them, do it. That, I'd say maybe I'd turn it the other way around. Don't just settle for doing what everybody else is doing um, because um, it's, it's too easy to get in a rut and get into a job where, you know, you're coping, you're, you're functioning, you're doing some good work, but it's not really exciting. Yep. Uh, I think take some risks. <laughs> do the exciting stuff. I think you're talking to two people that subscribe to that uh, <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> Absolutely. Jim, that's about all we've got time for. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You certainly uh, uh, are showing uh, all the listeners and us on, uh, about stepping out of your comfort zone and contributing in ways that, that I really am just beginning to imagine. Well done on, on your research and its applications and, of course, your work in the field. Um, Stu, have you got anything you'd like to add before we finish up? Oh, look, just uh, to echo your comment, Rich, um, and to say thank you, Jim. You know, I, I really, uh, I've always had a connection to the third world myself and uh, some of the things that, that I'm very committed to involve trying to help people in the third world in particular and I just want to say thanks. Yeah, thank you to both of you for having me on the show. Thank you. You're absolutely welcome. To all of you at home, in the car, wherever you are, thanks for joining us. We hope the insights provided by Jim help you on your journey and inspire you to contribute in your own special way. Make a point of visiting careersunplugged.com to check out Jim and uh, his various comments that we're going to record there. Leave a comment, get access to a whole bunch of resources designed specifically to help you make it big in life, career and business. This has been Careers Unplugged with Rich and Stu. Hi, Kim Morrison here from Up For A Chat. Cindy, Karen and I cannot wait to arrive in Melbourne for this year's event. The Wellness Couch publishes over 300 podcasts per year, but there is only one Wellness Summit in 2014 and we want you to be there. We want to meet our listeners and share with you the information that we simply cannot put onto a podcast. If you're ready to take your health and your life to another level, then join us crazy Up For A Chat girls, the gorgeous hunk of spunk wellness guys and some very special guests at this year's summit. Tickets are just $297 and are available at thewellnesssummit.com. Can't wait to see you there. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. 
Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.